This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts keeping you up to date on what in the world is happening and how it may affect your life. Welcome back. It's been pretty well established that technology can be addictive, that social media in particular is having a distinctly negative effect on our kids and their ability to interact with others around them and the rest of the world. What do you do when your child becomes highly irritable, when their grades begin to slip, when they're withdrawn, depressed, spending all their time on their devices? You call Dr. Victoria Dunkley and she can help you get things back on the right track. It's not easy, it's not painless, but it works. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Well, I think we need to talk about the temperature. It's hot. Yeah, it's hot. And this is an article from Reuters written by Gloria Dickey, and it is entitled, World Register's Hottest Day Ever Recorded on mm. July 3rd. Yeah. July 3rd was the hottest day ever recorded globally, according to data from the U.S. National Centers for Environmental Prediction. The average global temperature reached 62.62 degrees Fahrenheit, surpassing the August 2016 record of 62.46 degrees as heat waves sizzled around the world. The southern U.S. has been suffering under an intense heat dome in recent weeks. In China, an enduring heat wave continued with temperatures above 95 degrees. North Africa has seen temperatures near 122 degrees. And even Antarctica, currently in its winter, registered record high temperatures. A research base in the White Continent's Argentine Islands recently broke its July temperature record with 47.6 degrees. That's in the winter. Yeah, this is the winter. This in is an, in Antarctica's winter. In winter. Antarctica, 47 mm -hmm. degrees. Right. Quote, this is not a milestone we should be celebrating, said climate scientist Friederike Otto of the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Britain's Imperial College London. It's a death sentence for people and ecosystems, end quote. Wow. Scientists say climate change combined with an emerging El Nino pattern were to blame. Researchers at Berkeley Earth said in a statement, quote, Unfortunately, it promises to only be the first in a series of new records set this year as increasing emissions of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases coupled with a growing El Nino event push temperatures to new highs. Well, it certainly is hot all around the world and combined with the, you know, the smoke that we've been having in From New York and Chicago, it's just, yeah, and of course down south. Texas is getting just blasted. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a blast furnace. Yeah. 120 degrees. Yeah. Okay, what else you got? This next one is really interesting to me because we work so much on chemical exposures. Uh, but this was published in The Guardian, written by Alden Wicker. And the title is, Are Your Clothes Making You Sick? The yeah. Opaque World of Chemicals in Fashion. Your Clothes Making You Sick. Clothes, mm-hmm. Okay. An Alaskan Airlines attendant receiving a new performance synthetic uniform in the spring of 2011 first developed a hacking cough. Then a rash bloomed on her chest and then next came migraines, brain fog, a racing heart and blurry vision. 
Other Alaska airline attendants reported that the uniforms were causing blistering rashes, swollen eyelids crusted with pus, hives, and in the most serious case, breathing problems and allergic reactions. Good grief. One attendant had to be taken off the plane and to the ER multiple times. Tests commissioned by Alaska Airlines and the Flight Attendants Union turned up tributyl phosphate, lead, arsenic, cobalt, antimony, toluene, hexavalent chromium, and dimethyl fumarate, an antifungal that had recently been banned in the European Union. But the uniform maker, Twin Hill, avoided culpability in court by saying none of these many mixed chemicals on their own were present at high enough levels to cause all of the different reactions. A lawsuit from attendants against Twin Hill was thrown out in 2016 for lack of evidence. Flight attendants are the canaries in the coal mine because of the length and consistency of their exposure, said Dr. Irina Mordukovic, one of the Harvard Study's authors. Even if each chemical is below safety thresholds, if you have hundreds of chemicals interacting, what effect does that have? When the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation had 38 pieces of children's clothing tested from the ultra-fast fashion brands, it found that one in five had elevated levels of toxic chemicals such as lead, PFAS, and phthalates. This year, the period panty, Thinex, settled a lawsuit stemming from a test by a Notre Dame professor showing high levels of fluorine indicating the presence of PFAS, a highly toxic class of forever chemicals that provide water and stain repellency. This is unbelievable. They're yeah. talking about chemicals in clothes. Oh, yeah. Some chemicals found in clothing, such as BPA, PFAS, and phthalates, have been found in time-bound experiments and longitudinal studies to mimic hormones and interfere with our endocrine system, mm. causing a little-understood cascade of health effects ranging from extreme weight fluctuations and fatigue to infertility and chronic disease. Chemicals are continually lost from any material over time. It is a physical reality that the chemicals migrate to skin from clothing with and without sweat. Mm. Quote, it's becoming more difficult to avoid these chemicals, said Dr. Elizabeth Seymour at the Environmental Health Center in Dallas. There are multiple chemicals that are put in everything and your clothing is included in that. But while beauty, cleaning products, and packaged foods come with an ingredient list, fashion does not, even though testing reveals it has some of the most complicated and multi-layered chemical profiles of any product, running up to 50 chemicals or more, end quote. A few states have labeling requirements or forthcoming bans on PFAS in clothing, but the federal government does not regulate what chemicals can be put on clothing and sold to adult consumers. We need a total overhaul of how we manage chemicals in consumer products in this country. That's an understatement. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, all, we do, all we do is talk about chemicals. You know, it's really interesting that you've got all these chemicals that by themselves, measured at the levels that they're in there, you know, are fine or, you know, not as harmful as right. you would think. But it's the synergistic effect of multiple chemicals, you know, kind of interacting with each other that nobody's looking at. Mm -hmm. None of this was a surprise, but it's, a, it's an eye-opener, I think, for many people. Don't put on a new uniform. Certainly, without, <laughs> certainly not without washing it. Yeah. But, you know, I choose natural fibers whenever possible. And as I always tell sure. people, you know, wear cotton, organic cotton if you can, and wool and silk and bamboo and, 
you know, what are, which one am I missing? Um, linen, right? So wear these natural fibers. And then you need to wash any new clothing, right? Because it has, you, you know, yeah, it has, Patty, it if, has if some you, chemicals on it to make it look nice in the store. Right? Yeah, but if you work for a company that hands out a uniform, you can't take it home oh, and no. wash it. That's right. You got to put the uniform on. Right. So, gee whiz, that's a startling story. Yeah. All right. Be careful okay. what you wear. What's this, next? This last article was published in Environmental Health News, written by Christina Marusic, who we actually had on our, our show our recently, yep. right? Yep. And the title is, New Report Shows Shell's Petrochemical Plant in Pennsylvania Hasn't Spurred Economic Growth. This is that giant cracker plant that's that they build, right? right? That's that's taking, oh, yeah. taking and we're gonna, fat gas. We're going to deal with all these, these, you know, these really poor economic conditions, it, and we're going to make it great. Right. Yeah. So proponents of a massive shell plastics plant in Pennsylvania promised the site would bring economic development to a long struggling region. Those promises have failed to materialize according to a new report. Western Pennsylvania's Beaver County, which is home to the plant, lags behind the rest of the state and the nation in nearly every measure of economic activity, according to the report, which was authored by the Ohio River Valley Institute, a progressive nonprofit think tank. Shell's plant takes fracked ethane gas and turns it into tiny plastic pellets that are ultimately used to make plastic products like bags and packaging. Fossil fuel companies like Shell are increasingly turning towards plastics production to keep their products in demand as the transportation sector shifts toward renewables and the world decarbonizes. And many new plants like the Shell ethane cracker in Pennsylvania have been proposed throughout the U.S. It's amazing that they're building a new plant to make more plastic, just as, you know, as, as plastic free July. As, just as plastic has become not only just a pollution issue, but a threat to human health and crossing one of the planetary boundaries. That's correct. Okay. Okay. So when Shell first proposed its Pennsylvania plastics plant, Pennsylvania lawmakers gave the company a $1.7 billion subsidy, the largest subsidy ever offered by the state at the time, to bring the plant to Beaver County. Many local and state politicians touted the economic benefits the plant was expected to bring to the region, while environmental and health advocates expressed concerns about the plant's pollution and projected public health costs. Yeah. And those concerns proved valid. The plant began operations in November of 2022, and by December, it had already exceeded several of its yearly air pollution limits. In one month? In they... one month. Oh, great. The plant was temporarily shut down and fined $10 million by the state for the violations, and several environmental advocacy groups are suing the plant for its pollution. This is a state-of-the-art plant just built, mm. a brand-new plant, and they exceeded their... Exceeded their, po their air pollution limits in one month, in 30 days. For the whole year. Those are air pollution limits for the year. They exceeded it in 30 days. Great job, guys. Right. Good. Well done. The Shell plant employs only a few hundred people, no more than a typical school district, said Eric DePlace, primary author of the report. He continued, Beaver County should serve as a cautionary tale to other economically depressed regions with dwindling populations. If you're looking at moving from somewhere else, do you want to move into the shadow of a petrochemical facility, or do you want to move someplace that looks pretty similar but has a great bike trail and nice restaurants? The evidence suggests that long-term economic growth comes from making sure a community is clean and has an array of diversified local businesses, not a giant petrochemical multinational with a pollution profile that only has a few hundred workers on site, end quote. Yeah, nobody wants to live there. 
It's going to be an economic disaster instead of an economic boom for that section of Pennsylvania. Right. And there are going to be health costs involved because it's, you know, it's another cancer alley. Crazy. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Over the past 20 years, we've witnessed a sea change in the way we live, the way we communicate, the way we spend our time. We've seen a rapid deterioration of social norms, of being respectful and polite, of our ability to talk to each other, to engage with people we may not agree with, or to empathize with those less fortunate. This has all been during a period in which technology has taken a primary role as our chief means of communication with each other, even within our own families. We've all witnessed the family sitting in a restaurant, absolutely silent, each one engaged with their own device, in their own world, separate and distinct from their family. When the food arrives, the gadgets are grudgingly put down, but never turned off. And for many families, it's not any different at home. In fact, it may be worse, as family meals in many homes are becoming a thing of the past. Now, correlation is not causation, and there are plenty of tech enthusiasts who claim that the rise in our use of technology has nothing to do with our changing, some would say deteriorating, sociological behavior. But there are those who believe it has everything to do with technology, and they have the evidence to prove it. Seeing these huge increases in diagnoses of ADHD, Tourette's disorder, bipolar, depression, suicide, all these things. And at the time, when I first started doing this, we didn't have the research we have now, but now all the research is backing up that all of these things have gone up and they're all being correlated with screen time as well. That's Dr. Victoria Dunkley, MD, Integrative Child, Adolescent, and Adult Psychiatrist in Los Angeles, a screen time expert and author of Reset Your Child's Brain, a four-week plan to end meltdowns, raise grades, and boost social skills by reversing the effects of electronic screen time. So it really started when I first finished my training. I was working with a lot of kids in foster care and group homes, and they all had histories of trauma and neglect, and they were just really difficult cases. And I noticed with those kids, if they played even a little bit of video games, they tended to get worse, and conversely, if we removed all the video games, they got a lot better. And I was actually working at a residential facility where the kids were living there so we could see everything and control everything they were doing. And one of the homes removed the video games for 30 days, and lo and behold, the behavior incidents went down by 30%. And this was like the, the most highly acute setting in the state. So that was significant to me. So I started just kind of using the same intervention of removing video games for a month to see what would happen with my private practice patients who just had, you know, attention deficit or some anxiety. Some of them had bipolar disorder, tics. And I started to realize that across the board, no matter what their diagnosis was, they all got better. So I started to think of it as a stress reaction that gaming was really just acting like a stimulant putting them in this state of stress, and they started to look pretty much like kids who had a trauma background, even if they didn't have one. I was seeing so many kids who were misdiagnosed, and a lot of them were on medication that they didn't need to be on, you know, and some of them were on multiple medications. So a lot of these kids, I was able to either get them off completely or at least reduce the amount of medication. You remove the screens, a lot of these things get better. Some of these kids, you know, had underlying vulnerabilities, and they did have a diagnosis, but it was much more manageable with the screen time out of the picture. So a lot of these cases were like ADHD cases, and once you got the screen time out of the way, yes, they still had some attention issues, but you could manage it with exercise and diet and maybe you know avoid medication altogether, and they were getting better grades and everything, so it was like life-changing. 
Of course, kids are kids, and there have always been periods of childhood development where kids act out, where they test the limits of acceptable behavior. That's normal. But when things begin to get out of hand, it may be time to seek professional help. Usually by the time they come to see me, things are going very wrong. <laughs> but even so, I mean, sometimes they don't necessarily think that it's the screen time when they come to see me, so it, it might take months of education and working through their resistance. You know, different parents have different reasons for using screens. You know, a big one is electronic babysitting, but there's also all sorts of other things, you know, like the parent wants to use the devices, so they want to put the kid on a device, or the parent wants to get stuff done, make dinner, clean the house, or it's a lot of times it's to control the child, like if the child is prone to tantrums or things like that, you know, they give the child a device just to calm them down. And sometimes it's even things like there's problems within the marriage, so having everybody on the screen, like, you know, allows everyone to kind of ignore the problem. So there's all sorts of different issues that can kind of come up within families, and sometimes one parent is kind of aware that screen time is an issue and the other parent is really resistant because they may have their own screen time issues. So every family is different, but I just start with the education piece, with what goes on in the brain with screen time. So what does go on inside those little brains when it comes to technology? How are devices, games, and social media being designed and used to elicit certain kinds of emotional responses that can result in significant and worrisome behavioral changes? So basically there's numerous effects that happen, but there's several different areas that are impacted. And one is brain chemistry, so the dopamine pathways get worn out. And then serotonin also gets depleted. Another area is the stress hormone. So we know that screen time leads to both acute and chronic stress hormones, as well as all the you know, other effects that those things cause. So high cortisol causes sleep problems, weight problems, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, all those things we know are associated with screen time. So immediately they'll have those stress hormones are released, the fight or flight response. And then over time, that repeated acute stress turns into chronic stress, so the cortisol regulation is disrupted. And that's when ha what happens when you're in stress repeatedly is the blood flow actually gets shunted from the frontal lobe, you know, the more, the more developed part of the brain, to the deeper, more primitive parts of the brain. So the child starts operating from the, you know, more primitive parts of the brain, the frontal lobe shut down, so they're literally behaving in a more primitive way, and they can't access those more rational parts of the brain. So the brain chemistry is affected, hormones are affected, and stress hormones also impact all our other hormones. Um, and then there's the body clock and circadian rhythm. So we know that artificial light in general, but especially screen light because it's so bright and it has a lot of blue and white tones that mimic the sky. So the brain interprets that as daytime and time to be alert. And when you get bombarded with that all day long, it doesn't have to be close to bedtime either. It can just be kind of throughout the day. Um, then the brain thinks it's daytime. Melatonin gets suppressed, which is the sleep hormone. Um, and then the body clock becomes desynchronized. So the body clock, normally our, our rhythm, we have kind of a nice sine wave. So we have, you know, we have um, arousal during the day. And then as the day winds down, we kind of calm down. And then we go, you know, are sleeping and hopefully in a deep sleep. So what happens is that kind of, that whole sine wave gets blunted, so it's just kind of flat, and we have kids who are in a high state of hyperarousal throughout the day, and then 
at night they're still in that state of hyperarousal. They don't fall into that deep sleep where you have all the repair and detoxification and consolidation of learning. None of that happens because they're in that high state of arousal and their, their muscles don't even fully relax. They don't go you know, through REM as much, all, that, all those things. Then the next day, they're tired again. So what do you do when you're tired? You look for something stimulating to keep you awake and then it's just a vicious cycle. If you're a parent of a child who's experiencing real behavioral problems related to screen time, your natural tendency would be to limit the time your child is spending with tech, to cut back on the hours or the devices, or try blocking certain online avenues. Actually, says Dr. Dunkley, that rarely works. I get so frustrated with some of the recommendations, especially for kids, about, oh, well, as long as they just put their screens away before bedtime, they'll be fine. That's not true. And that's what I was seeing when I was, you know, when I kept trying to reset these kids, we couldn't just cut back. It just didn't work. I tried it so many times. Like, of course, every family just, they just want to cut back. They don't want to get rid of everything, you know, and it just doesn't work. I mean, it, I'm not saying it doesn't help to cut back, but we don't see that same reset and with the sleep, with the mood regulation and focus, because when you actually reset them, it's, it's so dramatic. It's, it's really more dramatic than anything I've ever seen in medicine. I mean, it's, their grades go up, they're happier. Um, even the kids themselves sometimes will, will say, you know, they feel so much better and they start noticing how their friends are acting. They have more insight, they're more creative. I mean, it's really like their brain, their brain wakes up. So every kid kind of has a tipping point where if they have too much screen time, they start to become dysregulated. So some kids, that tipping point is a lot earlier. You know, you see it right away. Other kids, they seem to be fine for months or years, and then all of a sudden, you know, things go south, and then the parent's like, what's going on? And then when I say, well, it could be screen time, let's do this four-week fast, and they say, well, they've been using screens their whole lives, so why would that be affecting them now? But it does happen because your brain can only tolerate so much before... It just becomes dysregulated. Resetting a child's brain after years of allowing them to spend hours every day on their devices is not easy. You may have seen the video of the young toddler throwing a tantrum when an electronic toy is removed from its grasp. But, says Dr. Dunkley, if the whole family is prepared, it can be easier. Well, we do a lot of preparation. We do go cold turkey, and I know from my own experience that that is the way that works best and that's also kind of all the people who work with screen time issues we all kind of agree have come to you know on the same page about that so we just do a lot of preparation about what's going to happen how do you explain it to the child how to sidestep the arguments and then if needed we actually come up with safety plans for kids who who might become aggressive and it does happen there's two kind of times that are higher risk and one is telling the child what's going to happen and the other is when you actually remove everything from the home. So first you tell you tell them about it, you tell them what's going to happen, you tell them you're going to do it with them so they don't think it's a punishment. So that a big part of their anger is um, how, you know, how dare you, how can you do this to me, you're on your screen too. So that helps a lot if the, par- the more the parents are on board and, and doing, you know, they don't have to do it exactly the same as the child, but as much as they can, um, that helps a lot. It helps the child feel like they're doing it as a family instead of making the child feel like it's, they're the problem. Of course, screens at home is only part of the problem. 
Today's school classrooms are filled with technology. Each child has his or her own device, a tablet or small laptop computer, and tech and software companies have rushed in to turn our educational system into a full-blown digital experience, or should we say, experiment. Pretty much everything they're using screens for at school is less optimal than doing it on pen and paper. So we know that taking notes, kids do better taking notes, they'll remember things better, they consolidate the material better, um, they perform better on tests if they handwrite their notes versus taking notes on a laptop. We know for reading that kids read more slowly and they don't do as much deep reading, which is meaning like making connections from one part of the story to another or you know, different parts of the material. And then when kids are learning to read, it also slows them down. You know, kids can learn some things on a screen for reading in terms of, like, memorizing things, but they can't learn how to read, how to comprehend. It's definitely impaired when they're reading from a screen. So what's happening now is kids with reading disabilities, which a lot of times is just due to attention issues from screen time, (laughs) um, they're using software to try to teach them how to read, and then obviously that just backfires. So then the kid becomes more and more discouraged without being given the opportunity to, to just learn how to read the way that we know works. So it's really a travesty, and that's what we're seeing um, across all first world countries is that reading scores are falling across the board and boys are falling twice as fast. When we do the reset, we see a lot of kids start reading that never read before, and that might mean you know a six-year-old, maybe they're not reading, but a six-year-old now able to sit in his mother's lap and read a story with her and sit there the whole time. And that is the beginnings of reading, you know. Um, other cases when the kids are a little bit older, you know, lo and behold, if they don't have anything to do, they pull out some books and then they start reading. And to hear a parent say, my son is reading now, you know, it's just, it's incredible because that really is life-changing, not just right then, but I mean, that really changes their whole life trajectory. Removing electronic devices from a child's environment is only part of the solution to a child addicted to screens. It has to be replaced by something, and that something is a loving, caring parent. Interestingly, the screen addiction, and really all addiction, hijacks the social reward pathways. So those reward pathways and the dopamine that we, that, you know, most people kind of aware of now, we actually have them for social bonding, and it keeps the child close to the mother, you know, when they're small and vulnerable. So that was the origin from an evolutionary point of view of why we have those pathways. And those are the pathways that get hijacked. So you have to replace that input with bonding time. And a lot of parents, because the parents are on their devices, there's less conversation, there's less eye contact. And because the child might be misbehaving, the parent doesn't want to be around the child anyway. So there's a lot of things that are affecting that parent-child relationship. And we know that just time spent together is is a protective factor um, for internet addiction. We often hear people talking about, well, they need to learn how to manage their screen time because they're going to have to learn to manage it later in life. But we just know from research that humans aren't very good at modifying their habits through willpower. It's much more effective to change the environment. So I always have families remove all of the devices and just have the bare minimum in the home to get by. They can't just put things in the closet because not only will the child find it, but the parent will give in if something's around. So that's why if you get rid of everything, then you're kind of forced to move forward. You know, And then even after the reset, 
it's helpful to just keep those, all those extra devices. And most families have a ton of devices lying around, old and new. It's helpful to just keep all those devices out of the house because it will force you to kind of keep those habits going. Really, it's the first time in history that kids are being given something that's addictive. Dr. Victoria Dunkley, integrative child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist in Los Angeles, a screen time expert and author of Reset Your Child's Brain, a four-week plan to end meltdowns, raise grades, and boost social skills by reversing the effects of electronic screen time. You can learn more about Dr. Dunkley and her approach to helping kids who are addicted to tech at her website. That's drdunkley.com, D-R-D-U-N-C-K-L-E-Y.com. Also, you might want to check out the nonprofit organization, ScreenTimeNetwork.org. That's ScreenTimeNetwork, all one word, .org. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Victoria Dunkley, our news editor, Patty Joyce, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. 